0: Our scripture lessons today, for those who will be listening later, come from Isaiah chapter 10, verse, chapter 7, verses 10 through 17, Psalm 24, verses 1 through 7, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, and Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now before I jump into the sermon, I do want to make one quick announcement. If you may have noticed already at the back of your folder is the entirety of Isaiah chapter 7. I decided to have that included because really our reading today is sort of out of context without the entire chapter. So I thought you needed it. You may want to refer to it in my sermon because I will at certain points refer to verses that are not part of the reading. So that is there for your convenience. At family gatherings this time of year, it's not unusual to hear the words, let's eat, grandma. Everyone has been waiting patiently and now it's finally time to come and sit at the table. However, the exact same words can be said very differently, giving an entirely different picture. Let's eat grandma. Poor grandma. She could have been spared with just a comma. This funny but macabre illustration shows how the same words can have entirely different meanings in different situations. Our Old Testament lesson reading today from Isaiah chapter 7 is just one of those situations. I mentioned last week that Isaiah's prophecies were sometimes meant for the immediate future, sometimes for the distant future, and sometimes for both. It's hard to know which is which, but soon we'll see that today's reading clearly falls into the last category. Just like the eating grandma scenario, the clues are subtle, but they are there. We're switching gears today from the poems of Isaiah to some narrative. Even though this passage follows immediately after the story of Isaiah's commissioning in chapter 6, this doesn't mean that these events took place early in his ministry. The book of Isaiah is not organized chronologically. This passage takes place after Kings Uzziah and Jotham have passed on. God sent Isaiah to King Ahaz to give him a wonderful promise. He should have been elated. Imagine how you would feel right now. If God showed up and said to you, that one thing that worries you most, I've got it. Don't worry about that anymore. We learn in verse 4, just before today's reading, that the two kings who have invaded Judah, that is, the kings of Aram and Israel, will soon be defeated. In fact, this is as good as done. Ahaz can take it to the bank. But God is looking for a sign of faith from Ahaz. Though it won't impact the promise he just made, God tests Ahaz one last time. All he asks is that Ahaz designate a sign that God will fulfill to demonstrate that the promise of Jerusalem's salvation is true. To fully appreciate this situation, let's keep in mind what an easy thing God was asking of the king. He wasn't asking Ahaz to spend years building an ark far from any body of water. He wasn't asking Ahaz to sacrifice his own son. He wasn't even asking him to lead an army into the promised land. All Ahaz had to do was follow Gideon's example and designate a sign. And as God said, it could be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. God was saying, whatever you want, everything's on the table. You could do that, right? Gideon chose a sign using wool and the morning dew. Quite scientific, if you ask me. Or he could have used Elijah for inspiration and built an altar and had God send flames to consume it. Instead, Isaiah said in frustration that King Ahaz chose to weary God. Not only did he show a lack of faith in refusing God's wonderful offer, but he disguised it in pious terms, saying, I will not put the Lord to the test. Ahaz was quoting from Deuteronomy 6.16, just as Jesus did when facing Satan in the wilderness, as recorded in Matthew 4.7. When Gideon asked for a sign from God, he did so to confirm he was following God's will. When King Ahaz refused to ask for a sign, it was an act of faithlessness, He already had made up his mind to trust in worldly means to save Jerusalem, not the power of God. In other words, he wasn't only refusing the sign, he was refusing God's salvation. What Ahaz failed to appreciate was that this was his last chance. With this spectacular failure of faith, God was putting into motion events that would determine the fate of his nation. One of the last things God tells him is in verse 17. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed Judah. The most damaging event in the history of Judah was the breakup of the kingdom with Israel's exit soon after King Solomon's death. God is now warning Ahaz that those traumatic days are returning, all because he lacked faith. The judgment of God would end both the Davidic dynasty and Judah as an independent nation. The means by which God would bring an end to Judah was the very means King Ahaz had intended for his salvation, Assyria. Ahaz, trusting in political schemes instead of God, paid the Assyrians to come and invade his enemies to the north so they would withdraw from Judah. And it worked for a while. But God later used Assyria to punish Judah. The irony is that even after Ahaz refused to name a sign, God gave him one anyway, God gave a sign to King Hezekiah without being asked in chapter 37 and again in 38, but that was as a result of the king's faithfulness. The sign for Ahaz was that a young woman would give birth to a child and name him Emmanuel, which means God with us according to Matthew 1.23, and he would eat curds and honey. I don't know how common a name Emmanuel was at that time, but a woman giving birth to a son isn't much of a sign. It's hardly miraculous, like Gideon's sign of the wool. Signs are meant to get your attention, to be obvious. Something as mundane as one of the king's subjects having a baby hardly fits the bill. Eating cheese curds and honey isn't much of a sign either. The exact meaning of a diet consisting of curds and honey is a bit of a mystery, but it is known that raising cattle does not require a large labor pool unlike farming, and since honey is naturally occurring thanks to bees, neither does that food. Relying on these foods means being part of a country that lacks resources, in other words, poverty. A country that lacks resources will live on the simplest foods possible, which at that time would have been curds and honey. This may be less of a direct link with individual poverty and more so an aspect of life in a poor country. But either way, Ahaz would have understood that Judah was going to have some tough days ahead. All this is a sign that before the child knows how to refuse evil and to choose good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. This is wonderful news for King Ahaz. It would be the equivalent of God telling Ukraine's President Zelensky that within a few years, Russia will no longer be a threat. We know the time is short because the prophecy will come to pass before Emmanuel reaches the age of moral accountability, and we have no reason to expect that the woman conceiving in the prophecy will be delayed. Though this is somewhat confusing, when compared with Isaiah's parenthetical statement preceding today's reading, In verse 8, that says, within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken to pieces so that it will no longer be a people. 65 years from now does not sound close. It definitely would not have been within the reign of King Ahaz. The only resolution I see to this difference is that the two similar prophecies are actually predicting different events in the northern kingdom. Either way, this is all good news for the faithless Ahaz. However, because of his lack of faith, God doesn't end there. The birth of Emmanuel is not only a sign of Judah's salvation from Aram's and Israel's armies, but it is also a sign of the later destruction of Judah by Assyria. God was fed up with the lack of faith displayed by his own people and their leaders, as he so often does. When he can't get our attention through less painful means, God does whatever it takes to get the attention of those who claim to follow him. In this case, that even includes the complete end of the independent nation of Israel. That's another piece to the sign of cheese, curds, and honey. Curds and honey are mentioned twice in chapter 7, and it takes both passages to understand its significance. The second time is just after today's reading in verses 21 and 22. Isaiah prophesies in verses 18 through 20 that Assyria and Egypt will devastate the land, resulting in curds and honey being the staples of the remnant in Judah. The logical conclusion is that because the prophesied Emmanuel will eat the same foods as the remnant in the land after the invasion, the child who will soon be born will also be part of the remnant. In other words, Judah's destruction is not far off. Though Judah will be judged by the failure of its king, some will remain in the land to carry on, though that existence will be much changed. One could understand the birth of a baby boy to indicate the continuation of God's people, which could be an oblique reference to Isaiah's theme of a remnant. I think it's fair to see a small bit of hope, even in this message of judgment. As I said in my opening, this passage is also a prophecy for a more distant future, a prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. This is true because of a little quirk in the Hebrew language. The Hebrew word Alma means young woman. This was the term used to describe the mother of Emmanuel in verse 14. That's how King Ahaz would have naturally understood it. However, Alma also means virgin. This makes sense since it was rare for a young woman in Israelite society not to also be a virgin. This shift in understanding from young woman to virgin comes after the birth of Jesus when we saw this prophecy in a new light. Also, because Jesus was the incarnation of God with man, Emmanuel becomes the perfect description of who he is, or a title more so than a name. No one could more perfectly be called Emmanuel than Jesus Christ. The last part of God's sign to Ahaz is that the child will eat curds and honey. As I've already mentioned, these foods were linked with marginalization and poverty. As a young child, Jesus was marginalized by being a refugee in Egypt. He and his family were a type of remnant, just like those Assyria left behind after invading Judah. We also know that Jesus was born into poverty, not just because of his birth in a stable, but because when he was later presented at the temple, his parents gave the least expensive sacrifice, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Lastly, the lack of mention of Joseph's father later in Jesus' life leads scholars to assume that he passed away. A single mom raising children in first century Israel would by definition be poor. Eating cheese curds and honey was a symbol of the poverty and marginalization personally experienced by our Savior. We live in a time when we look back to see the sign of the Messiah. It's all laid out there for us in detail in the Holy Scripture. And it points to a time when Christ will return in glory. Like King Ahaz, we too face a test of of our faith. The stakes are high. All eternity is on the line. So the question Jesus has for us is, Will you trust in me to handle everything that worries you and the sin that weighs you down? Or will you rely on the things of this world to save you? Will you accept my grace and be forgiven? God isn't asking for blind faith. He repeatedly gives us signs that point to his faithfulness. In fact, communion is one such sign. What a bizarre, meaningless ritual this would be were it not for the fact that our Messiah did come and did die for our sins and did rise again and glory. this sign this sign means our life in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit.